there is a common saying in the Goldbug community, the person that has the gold makes the rules. And we are seeing that play out in spades today with China restricting exports on super specialized critical minerals for chip production. And the minerals are gallium and germanium. Just looking here at CNBC, China is restricting exports of two niche metals, germanium and gallium, that are key to manufacturing electronics and semiconductors as the tech battle with the U.S. and Europe heats up. And one wonders, they don't mention it in these articles, but the military applications. Germanium is used in fiber optic products and night vision goggles while gallium is a critical material for semiconductors, China produces 60% of the world's germanium and 80% of gallium, according to the Critical Raw Materials Alliance, an industry body. However, analysts said the impact of the restrictions will be limited, as there are other sources of the metals and substitute materials can be used. One assumes the price will go through the roof, though. If 60% of the germanium and 80% of the gallium is being taken off the market. It's hard to imagine prices staying cheap. So we're getting a firsthand view of the relationship here between natural resources and geopolitics, a up-close-and-personal view. The timing is interesting as well. Janet Yellen on Thursday is expected to arrive in Beijing for a visit to attempt to it's hard to say if they want better relations, worse relations. Things don't seem to be improving. And so the timing is interesting. One imagine it was done at the last minute before the visit in order to maximize chaos and also create leverage in any potential negotiation that takes place. So I looked at the Chinese release. They are doing it for national security purposes. It is worth mentioning as well. So things are getting real in terms of this whole resource situation. I think it was Mike Tyson that said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. And that's sort of my impression of this whole natural resource situation. It's all abstract. They are just news stories that seemingly have zero consequence. But this, to me, is a punch in the face. This is real. And it is mandated for August 1st. So it is not that far away. So, you know, again, the scarcity of minerals is a developing story. Before, it was something that we saw as, you know, reports from Goldman Sachs, you know, analysts coming out here and there saying in a few years there could be an issue. So that I wouldn't have called so much a developing story as a ongoing, you know, issue, theme. Now, though, we're going to talk to Roberta Caselli today, Commodities Research Analyst at Global X ETFs, and she is coming back on the program, and she is concurring on what we are seeing in the copper market. She adds silver, as she explains in the interview, silver is not a dissimilar situation to copper. And I've been looking on the LME website. I mean, it's quite fascinating. If you go to LME.com, you can actually follow this. So on Monday, the opening stock was at 72,975, I assume tons. And today, the following day, it is 69,700. So we're down 3,000 on the entire exchange. Now, 
That doesn't mean they are all spoken for. Yesterday, there was 34,100 tons that were not spoken for. Today, there is 34,575. Although there is less stock in the LME, there is slightly more available. But as Roberta points out, we're down 20% month on month. When we discussed this last week, we're down more than 10%. We were at like 80. Now we're at 69,700 as far as stocks. So the actual stocks that are on the exchange are tightening up. And we have a very interesting column from Reuters on this story. Again, this is a developing story. So if you didn't think we had enough to worry about with copper and silver, now you can add gallium and germanium to the mix, metals that most of us have not heard of. So let's take a quick look at that story here. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. China imposed restrictions on exporting two metals used to make semiconductors and other electronics, a move that's likely to raise costs for hardware manufacturers and worsen geopolitical tensions over the race to develop advanced computing technology. Gallium and germanium, along with their chemical compounds, will be subject to export controls starting August 1st, China's Ministry of Commerce said in a statement Monday. Introducing the measures will serve national security and China's national interest, The statement showed China is the leading producer of 20 critical raw materials, including gallium and germanium, as measured by its share of global mining. It is also dominant in refined production and processing. These two metals are used in a wide range of products such as solar panels, lasers, night vision goggles, and computer chips. Exporters for the two metals will need to apply for licenses from the Commerce Ministry if they want to start or continue to ship them out of country, according to the statement. The firms are required to report details of the overseas buyers and their applications, and reviews might be escalated to the State Council if needed. The measure is the latest development in a global battle to control technologies vital to industrial and military capabilities and can be seen as an escalation of the worsening relationship between China and strategic rivals such as the U.S. There's also a larger meta-theme that I don't want us to miss as well, which is the very idea that restricting resources can be used as a weapon. We've only really seen it, to my knowledge, back in 2010 when Japan and China were battling over some islands and China said they were going to restrict exports to rare earths to Japan. And that was what kicked off a major bull market in rare earths, frankly, what brought me into this business to begin with. So I remember it very, very well. So we have seen it before, but we haven't really seen it since, to my knowledge. Now we are starting to see the game plan. And let's not forget, China accounts for the processing and refining for the majority of copper and nickel. And these are major commodities. And that's not to mention all of the tentacles they have in projects around the world, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Bolivia with lithium, and on and on it goes. And we have fascinating stories. It's been going on for two decades. You know, China has been collecting resources for two decades, whereas the West has really only clued in, you know, as someone who's been in this business since 2012, I would argue the West has only really clued in at earliest with COVID. 
You know, that was the first time really in the West where everything went from abstraction to, okay, the grocery store's shelves are empty. This is impacting me. This isn't just another news story that has zero impact on my life that happens to someone else somewhere far away in the world that might as well be a fictional tale. As far as my, you know, boots on the ground, practical, how it affects my day-to-day life. Now we're getting a sense for it. And again, people talk about a second wave of inflation, and I'm very sympathetic to this story because I think one of the kind of wild aspects of the inflation so far is we had a big jump once Russia invaded Ukraine. We did have a large jump in many commodities from oil to copper to nickel to tin and zinc and everything really jumped, but it has come down. Yet in places like England, inflation is quite sticky. Apparently it's coming down in places like North America and Europe, but interestingly, they are still having a problem with things like rents, like housing. Now, the interesting thing about that is rents have nothing to do really with commodities. I mean, it may be a little bit in terms of how many buildings are built and this sort of thing, how many apartment buildings are built, but really it has more to do with interest rates and mortgages. You know, maybe more people are forced to rent right now because they can't afford to buy because mortgage rates are now at 7% and, you know, increasing pressure on the rental market. So all to say, we're having what they call sticky inflation, yet commodity prices are at like pretty, what I would call normal levels. Oil at $71 a barrel for WTI, copper still below $4, gold still below $2,000, and nickel still below $10 a pound, despite everything. And then compounded with that precariously low stocks in copper, in aluminum, in silver, as we're going to hear today. So it's all coming to a head here. So again, everybody is just throwing darts in a dark room at a dartboard when it comes to predicting the future. All that being said, one could imagine a supply-side inflation at some point, whether it's if things keep growing or even more precariously, if things slow down and we still run out of the metal. As Roberta Caselli points out, we need these metals for the green transition. And frankly, nobody seems to know where these metals are going to come from. And if anything, what we're seeing are reduced help from Russia and China, who are major processing and refiners in China's case, and in Russia's case, providers of raw materials. So again, we're not in the land of science here, for the most part. We do have some numbers on supplies, and so that gives us some clue, but we're more in a qualitative zone here. We are dealing with different stories, which is why I continue to re-emphasize the situation, get more confirmation. That is basically what we get today, is more confirmation from Roberta Caselli that our suspicion, our models on what the situation is out there 
we're getting more, I would say, confirmation. We're never going to be 100% certain. We're not in the land of mathematics. We're not in the land of quantitative data. We're dealing with stories. And yes, there is quantitative data on supplies, which we are looking at on the LME. As Roberta points out, Chile, we just saw a story is down 14% on the month, year on year. That Meaning a year ago, I believe it was in the month of May or June, the amount that Chile is producing is 14% lower. So this is also feeding into it. And finally, listen to this. The interim CEO of Newcrest is sounding the alarm, a terrifying future if miners and regulators don't step up. So again, I keep saying here, the CEOs are the best paid people in the minerals industry, in the resource extraction industry. The highest paid people are the CEOs. So therefore, they should be the most informed people. If you're taking in over a million dollars a month for your job, you better know what is going on out there in the world of copper, gold, silver, iron ore, aluminum, you name it. You better know what's going on if you're getting paid that much money. And my assumption is these people are the most informed in the world. You heard Robert Friedland last week with what seemed like a cri du coeur on what could happen in the copper market. Now we have Newcrest, interim CEO, saying a quote-unquote terrifying future awaits us if miners and regulators don't step up. So we have another fascinating program for you here as increasingly natural resources are playing a bigger and bigger role on the chessboard. You could argue they are the chessboard. And we at the Northern Miner have been covering this topic for over a century, since 1915. So you know where to come if you're looking for this kind of information on what is happening on the chessboard, with the chessboard. Come visit us at northernminer.com and mining.com. We are here to inform you. We've been doing it for over a century. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, just a little bit from this column, this is Reuters via mining.com, and the columnist is Andy Holm. It's quite complex in the middle of the article, but I did just want to highlight some of the issues here. So this was written last week when actually there was more copper at the LME. Let me read a little bit of this. There's a renewed scramble for copper sitting in London Metal Exchange warehouses. Headline LME copper stocks have slid from 100,000 tons to 77,000 tons over the last three weeks, despite almost 30 tons of arrivals. And remember, Today, it's at 69,000 tons. So we're down another 10% from when this article was written. And we were at 100,000 tons only three weeks ago. I guess it would be four because this was written a little under a week ago. That's incredible. What's arriving is just as quickly turning around and going out again. Available tonnage stands at just 31,900 tons. Now it's about 35,000 tons enough to supply the global market for around 11 hours. So that is the gist of it. 
I also wanted to go to the very end because it gets into some fairly complex issues there. But if you want to read all the details, just go to mining.com, look for global exchange copper stocks sink to 15-year lows. I did just want to find the conclusion here. Dr. Copper seems undecided. LME three-month copper briefly spiked to a two-month high of $8,868 per ton last week, but has since retreated to a current $8,380. The limited price reaction and the relatively constrained backwardation across the front part of the curve imply the market is betting that there is a lot more copper out there in private stocks. The pace of LME arrivals in recent days shows there are available units for exchange warranting. Physical premiums are soft across all three regions due to weak spot demand according to fast markets. Surplus metal, however, is not sticking in the LME warehouse system, leaving visible inventory a bull flag in an otherwise bearish landscape. Either global exchange inventory rebuilds over the seasonal summer soft spot for northern hemisphere demand, or the market is going to have to rethink just how much copper is really out there. So it seems Andy Holm over at Reuters is saying there may be a little bit of a disconnect in terms of the price. Continuing on, this is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. The world's appetite for solar panels is squeezing silver supply. Changes to solar panel technology are accelerating demand for silver, a phenomenon that's widening a supply deficit for the metal with little additional mine production on the horizon. Silver, in paste form, provides a conductive layer on the front and the back of silicon solar cells. But the industry is now beginning to make more efficient versions of cells that use a lot more of the metal, which is set to boost already increasing consumption. Solar is still a fairly small part of overall silver demand, but it's growing. It's forecast to make up 14% of consumption this year, up from around 5% in 2014, according to a report from the Silver Institute, an industry association. Much of the growth is coming from China which is on track to install more panels this year than the entire total in the U.S. Solar is, quote, a great example of how inelastic demand for silver is, end quote, said Gregor Gregerson, founder of Singapore-based dealer Silver Bullion. The solar industry has evolved to become much more efficient with using smaller amounts of silver, but that's now changing, he said. At the same time, supply is starting to look tight. It was flat last year, even as demand rose by nearly a fifth, figures from the Silver Institute show. This year's production is forecast to increase by 2%, while industrial consumption climbs 4%. The trouble for silver buyers is that cranking up supply is far from easy, given the rarity of primary mines. About 80% of supply of the metal comes from lead, zinc, copper, and gold projects, with silver as a byproduct. And scrolling down a bit, the result is a strain on supply so significant that a study from the University of New South Wales forecasts that the solar sector could exhaust between 85 and 98 percent of global silver reserves by 2050. The volumes of silver used per cell will increase, and it could take about five to ten years to bring them back to current levels, according to Brett Hallam, one of the authors of the paper. And we have a quote here as well, quote, substitution will look more interesting when silver's at, say, $30 an ounce, as opposed to $22 to $23, said Philip Klapwick, managing director of Hong Kong-based consultant Precious Metals Insights, and one of the authors of the Silver Institute report. There won't be a doomsday scenario where we run out of silver, but, quote, the market will restore an equilibrium at a higher price, he said. Very interesting. Continuing on, China set to boost state cobalt reserves after tumble in prices. 
So this is quite interesting too. Bloomberg News via mining.com. China is taking advantage of tumbling cobalt prices to build up its inventories of the metal used in electric vehicle batteries and aerospace alloys. The National Food and Strategic Reserve Administration, the government stockpiling body, may buy about 2,000 tons of cobalt, according to people familiar with the matter. The agency invited three local refiners and a state-owned trader to a meeting in Beijing last week to discuss the potential buying agenda, said the people, who asked not to be identified because they're not authorized to speak publicly. The purchases will likely happen in the second half if the tenders are accepted, they said. So, more evidence that China is just stockpiling metals, this time cobalt. Another story, this is Reuters via mining.com. Bolivia taps China, Russia's Rosatom, in bid to unlock huge lithium riches. So Bolivia is partnering up with China and Russia to mine its lithium. Bolivia has signed lithium agreements with Russian state nuclear firm Rosatom. And China's Citic Guan Group, the South American country's government, said on Thursday as it looks to develop its huge but largely untapped resources of the battery metal. The deals, which envisage total investment of $1.4 billion, follow a similar agreement in January with giant Chinese battery maker Cattle, another potential win for Beijing in its efforts to lock supply of the metal used in electric vehicles. And we have a quote, with these deals, our country will be able to produce some 100,000 metric tons of lithium carbonate in 2025, in the Uyuni, Coiposa, and Pasto Grande's salt flats. Minister of Hydrocarbon and Energy Franklin Molina said at an event in La Paz. Continuing on, China jumps ahead in the rush to secure lithium from Africa. Bloomberg News via mining.com. So what we see here is China is not slowing down one bit in its attempt to acquire more natural resources. China's early move to tap new centers of lithium supply across Africa is reaping rewards, helping the top electric vehicle battery producer navigate a tight market for the key metal. Spurred by a flurry of investment from Chinese companies, mines across the continent are forecast to increase production of lithium raw materials more than 30-fold from last year's volume by 2027. According to S&P Global Commodity Insights, Africa will account for 12% of global supply by then, compared with 1% in 2022. So, very interesting. Continuing on, Stellantis signs deal with Kuniko for supply of battery materials. This is Reuters via mining.com. Stellantis has signed an off-take and equity investment agreement with Australia-listed Kuniko, the latest of a string of deals aiming to give the carmaker stable supply of key materials for vehicle batteries. Based on the binding agreement, the Franco-Italian automaker will get 35% of future production of battery-grade nickel sulfate and cobalt sulfate from Kuniko's exploration projects in Norway for nine years, the two companies said on Friday in a joint statement. Stellantis also agreed to buy new shares in Kuniko worth 5 million euros, giving it a 20% stake in the company and the power to appoint one board member, they added. So it sounds like a pretty early project. Interestingly, they are brownfield and greenfield battery metals exploration projects in Norway, which include nickel, cobalt, and copper. So car companies partnering up really with exploration companies. Pretty fascinating. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices.
turning to metal prices. Let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond, which is now yielding 3.86%. That is 0.15% higher. So they did spike up a little bit. I saw the British gilt. Let's just take a very quick look. The 10-year U.K. bond is at 4.4%. So it's actually up at 4.45% earlier. So it continues to really push higher here. It's going to be fascinating to see if it ever breaks this 4.5%. Seems like a real war going on right there. Turning to metal prices, gold is trading at $1,913.75 per ounce. That is $17 lower than last week. Silver is $0.02 lower at $22.78 per ounce. Platinum is $20 lower at $908.07 per ounce. And palladium is also lower at $1,235.45 per ounce. That is $78 lower, and it continues to hit new lows since we started measuring palladium about three years ago. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is unchanged at $3.78 per pound. Iron ore is at $110.87 per metric ton. That is $2 lower than last week. Aluminum is also unchanged at $0.98 per pound. Lead is down $0.02 at $0.97 per pound. Nickel is down $0.35 at $9.23 per pound. Tin is higher at $12.15 per pound. That is $0.14 higher than last week. Cobalt is also higher at $15.16 per pound. That is $1.77 higher than last week, and lithium is down $0.51 at $42.42 per kilogram. Uranium is down $0.30 at $56.20 per pound, and zinc is up $0.02 at $1.08 per pound. So a bit of a mixed bag here. Really, most things have edged lower. All precious metals are lower. Copper and aluminum unchanged. Generally lower, with the exceptions being tin, cobalt, and zinc. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Roberta Caselli, Commodities Research Analyst at Global X ETFs to the Northern Miner Podcast. She is an, and she gives a comprehensive assessment of what is happening in the copper, silver, uranium, and oil markets. So four extremely interesting markets. So it is a fascinating discussion. Again, a lot of confirmation of what we're seeing in the news stories out here. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome back Roberta Caselli, Commodities Research Analyst at Global X ETFs to the Northern Miner Podcast. Roberta, welcome back. Thank you very much, Adrian. It's my pleasure. Well, the pleasure is mine. I still remember our last conversation, a comprehensive view of copper. What fascinated me, I think, most and what was most memorable about the last conversation was this focus on the Chinese property market and its relationship with copper. And I believe that you were saying that it seemed like Chinese housing starts or that people were building more houses in China and that this was ultimately 
bullish for copper. So picking up where we left off, where is that thesis? Did that turn out? How are things going in the copper market from your perspective? Sure. So, yeah, I think that now in regards to China, we are more in a wait and see mode until the next point of meeting in uh, in July. And that's mainly because of the potential further stimulus that China could reveal. And indeed, as I was saying last time, we were expecting a rebound uh, mainly as a consequence uh, of these steps of, uh, of stimulus that have been announced since last year for uh, restoring uh, domestic confidence in the real estate market. And so that's a narrative that is still playing out and we are still following. And in regards to the latest data points that we have, actually uh, China copper refined demand uh, is still higher than its five-year average and also uh, year-on-year but that is also linked to the base effect of the zero COVID policy last year. But at these price levels, we see that the import arbitrage from China is open again, and this is weighing again, once again, on visible inventories. I remember last time in our prior conversation, we uh, we mentioned how the level of visible inventories was dangerously uh, low, at a record low, and this is still the case. In particular, in the LME inventories, the latest data point actually shows a further decrease month on month of about 20%, and a further decrease if we look at the five-year average of around 50%. So again, I think that here in, the, in this last quarter, some bearish pressure on the copper prices came from uh, expectation of low manufacturing demand. And also, for example, if we look at uh, the latest June China manufacturing PMI, still points to a contraction at uh, 49. So to give you more context, this indicator has been in expansion territory for the first three months of the year, and now it is in contraction for the last three months. But again, as I was saying before, a substantial change in the sentiment could be brought by potential more China stimulus uh, announcement in uh, their next meeting in July. And say other uh, factors that had an influence somewhat bearish on, on copper prices lately were also a firmer than expected US dollar and also the narrative of the macroeconomic narrative of the central banks that seems that are still set to continue raising interest rates and potentially further cap industrial output. But again, these factors are more exactly cyclical and less linked to the more longer term narrative of, uh, of copper linked to the tailwind coming from the clean energy uh, transition. It's so interesting you mentioned this drawdown in inventories on the LME. I mean, I was looking at it myself. I've started going to the LME website just out of curiosity, <laughs> and it is quite dramatic. So did you hear, for example, you know, these stories that have come out in the last couple of weeks about all these canceled warrants and this, you know, I think it was in Bloomberg where, you know, significant amounts of copper are being taken for delivery and what seemed like a surprising amount to the reporters, like an unusual amount. And it seems like it's supposed to come off in the coming weeks and that it's already started to leave. So did you see those stories and and how much of a you know red flag is that for you? 
Yeah, so I would say that supply and inventory risk are uh, a consideration with, with copper, as I mentioned, being a core material building block for renewable power grid and electric vehicles infrastructure. And so I would say that the demand side that I just discussed in the short term is just one side of the story, but then there is the production disruptions, uh, factors in key South and Central American regions that add to concerns that the copper market may be heading into uh, a deficit. And so there are still supply disruption concerns and project delays. And so, for example, on Friday, fresh data on, on uh, copper production in, uh, in Chile reported another decline, uh, continuing a string of disappointing news in terms of uh, production uh, data from a country that normally provides more than a quarter of the world supply of, of copper. And so, to give you the data point, uh, May's output was 14% below May output of last year. And overall, Chile copper output this year could uh, sink as much as uh, 7%. And of course, these supply disruption and project delays weigh on, uh, on inventories even more than uh, the imports and demand. Interesting. So you also have pressure from the supply side, then you're saying, as we've been seeing stories with Chile, seems to be struggling to maintain last year's output. I think I saw a 14% lower this year, uh, you know, regarding the last month or so, if exactly. I remember that correctly. So, yeah, right, correct. so it's, so this is pretty interesting. So I guess just before we move on from copper then, where do you see this going? Like, it seems to me the dynamic is we have macroeconomic factors, which may be bearish. You know, the Fed is hiking and problems with growth in China. But nevertheless, we have what we might call a extraordinarily tight inventory situation. So at any point, I mean, I guess the risk is to the upside. One would think that if there's any kind of growth or any surprises to economic growth. I mean, it seems like this would be quite bullish. Is there anything you would add to that or change? Yeah, I agree with your uh, recap, I would say. And and definitely we believe that copper at this price level still present compelling investment opportunities. And also from uh, an investor positioning uh, point of view, measured, for example, by the managed money net length, we have observed a renewed interest in copper over the last month, both in COMEX and the LME futures market. And as mentioned before, this is also linked to the more long-term energy transition narrative, where uh, the clean energy demand for, for copper is, uh, is key. And so, we have also seen many governments investing uh, a lot to develop renewable energy. And so the copper dynamic is not just linked to, to countries such as China, but also uh, United States and Europe are increasing their share of copper demand. Indeed, we have seen in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, initiative to provide credits to buy electric vehicles, Europe to increase its demand to co for copper to accelerate its shift to, to renewable, to win off Russian gas. So these factors are playing an important role beyond the macro story. Okay, and very quickly, before we move on to silver, another one of your specialties, if things do pick up in the global economy and and even if they don't, do we know where this copper is going to come from? Because we see these almost panic-like statements, say from Robert Friedland last week, you know, copper is going to go up 10 times. We have Goldman Sachs, head of commodities, Jeff Curry, 
saying, you know, it's going to pull in oil like oil did when it was $10 a barrel and going up to 150. Do you have any sense in your mind of where the, you know, that things might not be so bad and that really if things pick up, do you know where it's going to come from? I would say in terms of how, where the price is going and like in terms of percentage from the current levels, I would say already in the, the next couple of years, I think that that we are going to see this dynamic in the price. And so I have a range in between 5% in 2023 and an increase of around 20% in 2024. But as mentioned, copper characteristics and the consideration that is used almost everywhere means that they are also that the prices are also very linked to economic cycles. So the macro story could be very important in terms of price swings. But I would say in the next couple of years, we could see already a substantial breakout higher from here. Okay, very interesting. And so turning to silver, another one of your specialties, we hear a lot about silver. Actually, we, as you, we were discussing beforehand, actually, you don't hear a lot about silver. <laughs> we hear a lot about gold and copper. Tell us about what's going on in the silver market. Yeah, um, so silver is most of the time overlooked because of gold, as you were just mentioning. But I would say that silver is a unique metal because of its dual nature uh, of being both a precious and an industrial metal. So this means that it can potentially appreciate in both environments where demand for precious metal is rising, such as during periods of heightened volatility and eventually when and if there is a slowdown of the Fed Oakish stance, but due to its industrial uh, metal nature, silver can also appreciate following a rebound in the economy and more precisely in, in the industrial growth. So taking a step back on the demand side, uh, for, for centuries, the silver has been used in a variety of luxury goods such as jewelry, silverware and fine art as investors look favorable upon the, the durable nature of silver and its collectability aspect. But today, silver is mainly a significant material for industrial uses due to its thermoelectroconductivity and high sensitivity to light. And so the metal is used extensively in a variety of faster growing electronic segments, such as most importantly, solar panels. And so silver's unique properties, as well as the relative small quantities of the metal required in many applications, often make it almost irreplaceable. And so silver prices are now rebounding from uh, the free month law in, uh, in, in June. And we have seen like as, as the factors, as the tailwinds of that definitely apply to save heaven assets also on the back of disappointing PMI data globally. But also in terms of the fundamentals, as I was saying, one trend that has the potential to dramatically change silver supply and demand landscape involves increased solar power installations. And so solar, as we mentioned before, too, is entering a new age after nearly two decades of development and the two green economy and install capacity growth, uh, basically the, the, the projections for a longer term growth are substantial. And so this translates in an important growth factor for silver. And in terms of the comparison between uh, silver and gold, two are uh, the most important differences. 
First is the fact that gold is trading more as a precious metal. Indeed, the industrial usage of gold is less than 10%, while industrial usage for silver is more than 50%. And also the the difference in the market size. So the market for gold is enormous, while uh, the market for silver is much smaller. And that means that silver could be thought as a leverage play on gold. And one indicator I would use here is the gold to silver ratio. It is the most useful at its extremes. So this ratio is used to compare to represents the amount of silver required to purchase one ounce of gold. And normally over the last 30 years, this ratio has been at an average of 65. Currently, the, the, the ratio I've seen that this morning is near 83. And this could actually indicate that silver is undervalued relative to gold. And that makes it very interesting. As said, this ratio is, is the most useful at its extremes. And when it is around the extremes, so around 80, it could trigger a mean reverting mechanism. That is so interesting. So if you're a precious metals investor, there is a case that could be made that you should be rotating back and forth between silver and gold as this ratio goes to extremes. That is fascinating. So in terms of then the supply, what are you seeing there? Like we hear about a tightness in the silver market. These are just stories you hear, you know, on YouTube, though. Like, do we have a similar mm -hmm. dynamic to what's going on, on, on in the copper market? Do we have lots of silver in stock, you know, relative to previous years? How are we doing in terms of supply? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because again, some of the dynamics that was uh, underlying in on uh, the copper market, uh, we can find also those dynamics in, in the silver market in terms of risk coming from also the regulation side of things and uh, project delays. So for example, now on the supply side, changes in the Mexican regulation could make it more difficult for mining conglomerates to, to be granted uh, mineral concessions. And so increasing the risk that uh, corporations may cut back on investments in new projects and putting uh, Mexico's status as the world's top producer at, at risk. And also Peru, it is the second one, we have seen silver production falling due to a similar project uh, delay. And so actually multiple market participants have raised scarcity alarms in light of the rising demand I just mentioned for silver that is uh, brought on by the shift to renewable energy um, sources. And in terms of uh, inventories, as uh, I believe I, uh, I mentioned to you also last time, we are still at low levels, both in the COMEX and uh, the London Bullion Market Association. We have seen a small increase in the last week or so, but still at very low levels. Okay, so we have two other areas here that you focus on. So I want to jump to those while we still have time. In terms of uranium, what are you seeing in the uranium market? It's been a tough trade for the first, you know, since 2010 to 2017 or so. It's been better recently. We're seeing the price perk up a little bit, edge higher a little bit in the last few weeks. What are you seeing in uranium? Yeah, definitely. So the role of uranium uh, and, and nuclear energy is definitely becoming increasingly important, uh, mainly for free reason and mainly for, for the consideration that nuclear is 
firstly a clean and then reliable and efficient energy source. So uh, nuclear is, is, is key to the energy transition, it's one of the cleanest uh, methods of producing electricity, but it's also very reliable, more reliable than other sources as the nuclear reactor can operate at full capacity more than 94% of the time. But nuclear power is very efficient too, in, in the sense that it can generate thousands of times more energy than uh, that released by burning similar amount of fossil uh, fuels. And so given these three reasons, we know how this momentum is very strong lately. And also uh, lately concerns that the current capacity of producers uh, throughout the cycle is, is not fit to meet the, this bullish long-term demand are once again as you have uh, mentioned, supporting prices. Uh, in particular, as many European utilities have already done uh, voluntarily, US government uh, has approved uh, recently two bills to ban the purchase of uh, Russian uranium. And this translates in straining the resources of the few remaining converters and reachers in, in, on the west side. And so there are supply worries, and supply worries have been further compounded by the fact that Russian companies have won some contracts to mine uranium in Kazakhstan that is the first producer, so endangering somewhat the neutrality of the world's top uranium miner and increasing these worries. But overall, we see that the need to decarbonize the global economy and at the same time finding a reliable energy supply meeting rising energy demand definitely are supporting uh, nuclear energy. So, for example, we've seen nuclear energy being framed as a climate change solution in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, and also the possibility for countries to begin to stockpile uranium as a backup power source could be very important when it comes down to energy security. And the enrichment market is also very important, and that that too could change and extend output amid these developments. Maybe the last thing I would mention here is also that in terms of the stigma attached to nuclear uh, and in terms of the perceived risk with nuclear energy, the industry lately has implemented a safe technologically proven means to, to transport, store and dispose of nuclear waste. Okay, excellent. And yeah, I'm even noticing among environmental friends, just anecdotally, friends who are, you know, not necessarily for mining, but they actually are quite supportive of nuclear power oftentimes. <laughs> so the, the narrative is definitely shifting. So just very quickly on uranium then before we go to oil, do you have any sense of when we could potentially, when trends might converge, where things might you know, get tighter? Do you, do you have a sense for that? Or do you have any sense for kind of where the market is going, at least in the midterm? Yeah, so in terms of incentive price, I would say that according to the different mining companies, the, the incentive price ranges between uh, 50 to 70, and now we stand around uh, 56. So I would say that uh, following an increase in price, definitely the, the supply should respond to this increase in, uh, in demand. And we have already seen this in uh, following term contracting uh, number. Indeed, already uh, this year, term contract 
acting is expected to have a great year and also last year was the numbers were uh, were uh, definitely positive to give you some context in 2022 basically there were already an increase uh, of long term contracts and now in just the first seven months of 2023 we basically already outperformed those numbers in terms of volumes and you mean production is that correct yeah when i say term contracting i'm referring to long-term contracts in terms of mining production and mining capacity so this is for me a proxy to understand how much the supply side is reacting to this demand good okay so you're seeing more supply come on the market already yes okay so turning to oil then finally I mean, it's been a very interesting market to watch uh, for the last year, and it is crucial for miners in terms of their profit expectations and just, you know, their cost of doing business. It is energy. You know, again, we see all these things with OPEC plus and maybe trying to reduce supply. We see the SPR, you know, Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the U.S., uh, you know, seemingly still being, I think, added to the market amazingly, at least from what I understand. What is your sense of the oil market right now? We're at WTI at $71, Brent crude at 76. Where are we? Yeah, I think you mentioned some key points there. So I believe that uh, bullish pressure on prices could come from inventories level and OPEC plus production cuts. So we have seen that uh, US crude oil inventories decreased from their March highs and uh, also production cuts by OPEC plus could limit crude supplies in the coming month. We know that uh, at the latest June meeting, they agreed to extend uh, the cuts already uh, proposed back uh, in, in April. And these cuts could remain in effect until the end of 2024 with the possibility of an extension in, uh, to 2025, actually. And I believe that from this last meeting and from these dynamics, it was clear and Saudi Arabia made it clear that it would take any step necessary to stabilize the oil market. And also from market structure point of view, if you look at the forward curve of WTI, the forward curve remains in a backwardation that suggests tight supply too. And as you mentioned, a further bullish pressure could come from the decision of the US Department of Energy that also plans to purchase more oil to replenish the strategic petroleum reserve. This is on one side. On the other side, there is still high volatility because at the same time, as we have seen before, the Fed could further increase rates as inflation remains still uh, high. And this could hurt the outlook for the global economy and energy demand. And also the slowing recovery in China, as already mentioned, that is also for oil, very important being the world's biggest crude importer, can balance somehow this bullish pressure that we just uh, mentioned. Overall, I would say that oil price volatility and uncertainty are likely to remain high. And on the supply side, we still wait on the possibility that there could be uh, further cuts from Saudi uh, Arabia. And it seems like Saudi Arabia, to your point, really wants to keep oil like it's at $70. It seems like they even want it at $80. It's just the sense that you get like they don't want to sell their oil for any cheaper. And so just looking at the supply, I mean, sometimes you hear these stories 
Like you have a lot of different takes on the oil market. Some people think with a recession, it's going to go lower. Put it this way. It seems to be a similar story to copper and silver, where if we get growth, it seems like there could be some pretty severe supply constraints, not as severe as copper or silver, but that, you know, there could be some upwards pressure on the price there, but that if we hit a recession, as many people expect in the second half, well, then it, it could theoretically go lower, but with the Saudis wanting to kind of keep a, a certain level on the price. What is your sense of this whole supply-demand dynamic? Yeah, you are definitely right in saying that Saudi Arabia is trying to provide a sorts of floor to the price. And as you mentioned, the idea is to have it to push the price even higher, around 80, in order to finance some key domestic projects. So that's the intention there. And so this uncertainty on the supply side and this cuts on the supply side overall, uh, I would say that I can see that in terms of flows, they are benefiting the U.S. market. Uh, indeed, uh, increased U.S. oil and natural gas production can close these supply gaps in the global energy uh, markets, especially in, uh, in Europe. And also we have seen that not only for, for oil, but also for gas. And so we have uh, seen how the US market has been uh, so uh, important. Uh, and I would say that also in regards to the different sectors that can benefit from these further production from the United States, let's see the midstream pipelines in, uh, in US are one of the, the sectors that are likely to remain very strong on the back of it. Also looking longer term, as you were saying, there are supply constraints and so even if the cleanest fuels are uh, are produced at fuel capacity, I think that oil and natural gas will most likely be needed to close the long-term deficit or the risk is to have excessive commodity prices. It sure feels that way as you hear the stories. But I mean, with so many things in commodities, it always kind of seems bullish and you can wait years sometimes. So it is a tricky trade, especially when it looks like everything is lining up. Final question as we wrap up here. As far as the European situation, we're in summer now. You know, winter isn't that far away anymore. Europe got lucky with the warm weather last year. Do you have any sense? Do you have any concern? Uh, where do you think we are with, say, net gas going into the winter here? Yeah, that's an important question. And exactly, we, we might have some of the concerns that we had last summer. One positive uh, consideration is that Europe's gas storage is at a record uh, of around 76% full uh, as of this time of the year. And they have again as a goal of being 90% full by November. And this year seems achievable. But at the same time, there is again global competition for LNG cargos. And we have seen gas shipments from the United States to Europe starting to be scarcer with supply uh, funneling to, to Asia, where, where prices can be more competitive in the summer, mainly due to stronger demand for, uh, for cooling. At the same time, we have also seen several outages. So, in the last days, for example, the two dangers in the Netherlands, most of all, there is the possibility uh, for Europe's largest gas site near Honingen uh, on October 1st to actually close. And so that would uh, again put 
further pressure on uh, on gas prices. So last year, as you said, we relied a lot on US LNG cargos. And this year uh, in the summer, we are again trying to win more uh, those cargos, but as mentioned, there is this global competition mainly coming from Asia. Fascinating. Roberta Caselli, Commodities Research Analyst at Global X ETFs, thank you for sharing your insight on this week's edition of the Northern Miner podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you once again to Roberta Caselli and Global X ETFs for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. We look forward to having you back in a few months to get an update on these incredibly interesting, dramatic markets over here. Also, the Canadian Mining Symposium is happening once again this year. It will take place in London, England. If you want to find out more information, register your interest, see who's speaking, just go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.